0: Hello and welcome to this Drum Network podcast. I'm Nikki McMorrow, the head of the Drum Network, and today we're going to be talking about global growth stories. What's the modern path to world domination? Almost every brand wants to make a global impact, and with the world feeling smaller and better connected than ever, it's an achievable dream for some. We want to gather experts in particular markets, localization experts and global brand builders To pin down what good strategy and tactics look like today, and what factors are continuing to change the global brand landscape. I'm joined today by four brilliant agency leaders from all across the world, from Singapore, the Netherlands and the UK, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves now.
1: Hi, I'm Herbert Ho. I'm the Senior Director of Growth and Partnerships with Jellyfish. Jellyfish is a independent global communications agency that helps uh, brands connect with their audiences through creativity, strategy, and technology. So, we've been founded in two thousand three, and we are globally one of Google's best partners. Uh, we work along with all the different platforms to actually try to engage uh, clients and to drive business growth for them as well. Glad to meet you.
2: Yes, and I'm Nicola Winters. I am the head of international at Search Laboratory. So we're a full-service digital marketing agency based in the UK and over in the US, and we help businesses expand into new markets. We do that by providing various sort of channel support, whether that be paid media, SEO, or more of your organic sort of channels like social media and content. I work with a team of digital practitioners who are based in various locations around the world, but we also have an in-house team. Um, of mother tongue linguists and we support all of the channel teams in implementing those advertising campaigns but by continually injecting linguistic cultural and sort of marketing audience insights
3: at every point hi everybody i'm roberto amerighi co-founder of of greengin we are a um, tech startup that developed a technology that helps uh, agencies and brands to Activate and measure any media they run through digital incentives. The technology works through QR codes and uh, um, special links that can be plugged into any any media run by the agencies and uh, and brands, and uh, and provide the opportunity to marry uh, brand marketing with performance marketing uh, when it comes to uh, from starting from impression to in-store purchase.
4: Then finally, my name is Yvonne van Bokhoven. I'm a Dutch national. I work at a company called Team Lewis. Team Lewis is an integrated marketing agency uh, with 24 offices around the world. I manage all the offices in Asia, Pacific and Europe. Uh, clients that we service are B2B uh, brands and technology brands, such as Palo Alto Networks, for example. But we also work on a lot of consumer brands, such as LG, Dyson, Jabra, which is headsets, uh, Visa, the card... Um, the credit card company, Skyscanner. So lots of uh, larger brands, also smaller startup brands, and we support those brands with campaigns that uh, are mostly international.
0: Super interesting. Well, I'm recognizing some huge brands there in that roster, which brings us nicely onto our first discussion point, really. A lot of the brands that are in the top 10, according to Interbrand and Visa and Forbes, include the same brands that were the top 10 and the top 20, like 20 years ago. What is different about building a global brand these days, if anything at all? Do the same rules apply as they always did? Or is it actually a little bit different now in this day and age, as we've had so much progress in so many areas, social, technical, economic and political? I'm
4: I'm happy to answer it. I think I'm in a good position to answer it because I've been around for quite a long time (laughs) in the industry. And uh, obviously, building a brand these days is completely different than it was when I started my career about nearly 30 years ago, scaringly enough, Um, because then there was much fewer channels. Um, It was a spray and pray tactic that you had to use many times. Um, You know, you had only a few mass media to choose from. The beauty of it was that you could easily reach a big audience, but you couldn't segment and you couldn't personalize. Today, we live in a beautiful world where you have all these various channels, platforms, you know, capabilities to reach everybody, uh, you know, with very, very uh, specific interests uh, on very, uh, you know, specific platforms, which makes the jobs for us marketers much more uh, exciting and harder at the same time, you know, because we have to, you know, adapt our message to all these various uh, channels and fine tune it. And that's also what the customer expects from us. Right. Um, The reason I think those brands that you've mentioned that they're in the top 10 are still around is because they, uh, they adapted very well to that, you know, you've mentioned Coca-Cola, you know, they're now really on the forefront with AI technology, embracing it. And they've always been looking to innovate and stay ahead of the competition. Right. And if, as long as you keep doing that and keep reinventing yourself and adjusting yourself to the new norm, then I think you can survive as a brand. Yeah. But if you don't, then, you know, it's going to be harder to survive in the long run and for new companies, new entrants today, yeah. I think it's not not easy to build a, a brand globally these days. There's lots of different rules, regulations in every market. It's very difficult to adapt to local culture and you need big pockets to, to really go global, right? But yeah, you can try small and, and enter a market as and when you're ready and build, you know, market by market uh, gradually and then, yeah, uh, uh, still be very successful in the space of a couple of years.
0: Interesting. Um, it's, it's interesting that you pick Coca-Cola as well, because in my mind, like they are and have been for so many years, one of the world's biggest brands. Um, and yet the um, the personalization of the Coke cans, to me, just indicates how you can personalize and culturalize without losing the brand essence. Um, you know, it never seemed un-Coke no and, and now and now again
4: you know they've got, they've launched a real magic creative academy you know and, and, and encouraging uh, creatives and designers uh, you know to use AI tools to incorporate the coca-cola brand and, and experiment, which I think again is really smart you know uh, uh, situationally fluent marketing from them
3: definitely yeah I think to Yvonne's, to Yvonne's point uh, the big multinationals have done a great job in adapting to this new world and how the scenario has evolved. Um, Probably the the challenger brands have been at first the most innovative ones that have paved the way through direct-to-consumer, an easier way to test and learn, adapt to the local needs, the consumer needs, uh, and and, um, the the multinational brands uh, have been fast to adapt and learn from the best cases uh, in the digital in the digital world and adopt the digital the digital marketing techniques to really segment uh, um, down to um, specific consumers uh, and and test messages new products uh, and see fast and check fast what what could work and what couldn't uh, in different in different environments uh, um so there's been a, a great a great way for challenger brands to trailblaze uh, um, what could work on the digital marketing side and uh, response also from the from the global brands uh, in terms of uh, how to adapt to specific uh, uh, segments of consumers localized to specific markets uh, in a personalized way.
1: I
2: just I just add on Coca Cola as well to me what they've created is almost a lifestyle that that's the brand. And, you know, like Yvonne said, they they've used a lot of budget for their globalization. And I think every brand should still be looking at the likes of Coca-Cola, even the likes of Ikea, you know, to say this is a good strategy. This is how you sort of dominate multiple territories. But at the same time, I, I do think that there's almost pros and cons because we're living in a world now where there are, there are more people online. They're a bit more mature as well in the way that they behave. They're a lot more flexible. And so I guess what that means is for, for brands, we have more options. We have more options to reach new customers in new territories. But at the same time, we should, we should be focusing, like Yvonne said, on identifying a market that is going to be lucrative for the brand or the products or the the services that we're providing and really take that seriously. I I feel that quite a lot of times brands are dipping their toes in international markets and probably because they aren't giving it their full attention, they're quickly switching off and trying somewhere else, and they'll never really realise their full potential. Um, And so, yeah, our advice is, is always to find those lucrative markets, dominate learn from it, and then use that those learnings to then enter your next place. And Completely agree, yeah. Yeah, and I guess with that comes the, in, in our experience, because we, we work with lot lots of different brands, and I think this, this whole thing about creating a brand in the first place, very rarely do we have businesses who create global brands from the get-go. These are domestic brands. And... Like we say, that there are lots of different rules, restrictions, different behaviors, different cultures, and we have to always constantly adapt to that. So that's why our strategy is very much take one market, dominate it, move on. And that is where we're going to find the most success.
4: We say the same. And, and whenever a, com- a company comes to us and goes and, and, and we ask them, OK, so which markets would you want to go after? And they go, well, all of Europe, you know, and you're like, do you have any idea how many countries, languages, and it's the same with Asia, right? Oh, we want to do all of APAC. I mean, and you're like, really? You've got, you know, unless you're bringing, you know, multiple millions, you know, forget it, yeah? So here's our budget, it's 50K, and we want all of APAC, yeah? It's just not going to work, yeah? So to to try and conquer.
2: Yeah, alienating, uh, you know, certain customers as well with, with what you're doing. If you If you don't, really take that seriously and you could create quite a bad reputation early on which again just means that we're never ever getting to that point of saying that was the goal that that is your potential in that market. Well that's an
0: interesting point actually as well which uh, the, um, the alienation of certain people within the market was maybe less of a problem in the past when there was less um, kind of intercommunication between everybody else. Um, uh, Herbert, you were going to say something.
1: Yeah, I was, I was gonna get a point of view from Asia, right? Uh, being from Singapore, we typically would see clients uh, from the Western part of the world trying to um, expand yeah. with, uh, across Asia Pacific and to you know to the rest of the speakers points and, uh, prior as well. Asia is typically seen as a region but it's not a region, right? It's a 14 different languages. There are cultural nuances. You can't use the same sort of languages within Taiwan as you can within China. If you market in China, you run it across Japan and Korea, it's never going to work. Right. So I think, you know, um, there has to be a staggered approach to it. Um, and what's most important for any brand who wants to do that globalization, it's uh, to know the lay of the land. Right. So what's sort of cultural nuances, what sort of legal nuances, uh, and I think uh, what's, you know, I mean, Coca-Cola is a good example. Tiffany is a good example where, you know, it's a single product, which has multiple users in multiple different situations across the different markets. So being authentic is going to be important. Being consistent is important, right? And I think um, with, with all globalization and uh, expansion uh, plans, be patient because um, launching a brand in the market is easy. Building a brand takes time. Then you need that time to actually establish that 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 truth of your brand and the credibility of the consumers as well.
0: I'm really glad we've got you on this call as well, Herbert, because I think one of the most important things for anyone trying to achieve global domination in the last sort of decade has been this shift in power from the US over to Asia. Um, suddenly, in Asia, um, consumers have got a, a, as much spending power as um, as the US and that transfer of wealth has obviously resulted in lots of brands realizing they need to um, have impact in Asia. Of course, not really understanding the culture and needing sort of local advice on how to do it. So have you uh, experienced this with some of your clients?
1: We do. We, we do see it a big way. I mean, uh, we've got clients uh, at Jellyfish, like uh, Uber, who actually come to us to launch uh, UT, which is their uh, version of uh, Uber in Korea. And, you know, I mean, if we look in terms of like the comms which we do for Uber, which we localize across uh, like the whole of the world, um, the disparity, the wealth disparity becomes a, a difference. Is it going to be bikes in India versus cars in other markets? Um, does Uber Eats uh, as a platform, as a premium platform, is it important Is a sellable within market? So these sort of like different uh, um, considerations do, uh, do come to play as well. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's a big one, right I think if we look in terms of the successes of clients, uh, Nike is a good example of a client who is actually um, you know invested significantly into into China. Um, you know I mean started, I mean I was in China in 2006. Um, this was prior to the Beijing Olympics where they've invested a huge amount of money into it, and that's paid off um, Unfortunately right now because of the um, China's slower recovery, it's also hit them as well. So I think globalization a it's a great way for businesses to expand but there are risks involved as well you open yourself to you know fx risk and global um uh, you know you know I mean the recovery issues and everything as well yeah
0: What about the um the need to stand for something more than just your product these days um you know we've I don't know if any of you have examples of um, brands that have done this really well, maybe clients of your own, um, where, you know, you take a stand, um, almost becoming kind of political about what you stand for. Um, You know, how does this help or hinder um, the building of a global brand?
1: I I think, you know what, I think this is uh, from a branding perspective, this is amazing for PR. Um, It is done the right way. Right, so um, studying for something in this day and age is super important, especially given how fragmented um, the psychographics of, of of our consumers are right now. Right, everyone wants to actually align to something. No one can actually really identify, you know, where they are anymore. Um, so it's, it's we we hinge a lot on social causes. Um, but while it's important, I mean, there are huge dependencies on it as well. Um, you know, being able to be authentic to your brand once again. It's super important. Um, Nike's example would be like uh, Colin Kaepernick. I mean, forgive me if I, which is anemia. So, you know, um, it, it was all over the news, right? Where you stand for something or nothing at all, right? No matter what happens. Um, and he's done it. And, you know, it was all over news for Nike. It's huge PR for them. Uh, did it generate a lot of uh, uh, positive sentiment? In actual fact, not a lot, 26% but it gave them a lot of PR. But they were authentic behind it. So did it help the brands in the long term? It did. Versus a brand in a company in Singapore. So there's a global convention center who wanted to support the LGBT movement by including a gender-neutral toilet. They announced it and it got a lot of backlash. So while it's not a bad thing, but given how conservative Asia is compared to the rest of the world, there are messages which resonate Market. There are messages which don't resonate in the market. So these are considerations uh, which you, which which a brand is taken into consideration. Yeah,
0: because mm, you can stand for something and it works really well in one market, and then but that doesn't work at all in the next one. So, um, Nicola, Roberto, Yvonne, do you have any experience of this?
4: Yeah, we work with a lot of companies for, for a lot of our clients want to talk about ESG and, and DNY, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, and uh, it some it works really well, but to Herbert's point, it needs to be genuine and authentic, right? And it needs to also be backed up by numbers and statistics. So we work for a company called Schneider Electric. They're an energy management company. They win all the awards when it comes to, you know, actually hitting the climate goals. Uh, their product and solution are, of course, also very um you know, uh, relevant for, uh, saving, uh, energy and, and in, improving the climate, but they've set themselves really, really high goals and they're hitting those goals and they're serious about what they're doing. We've also got clients that come to us and say, Hey, you know, we want to put out a message about DNY because we've appointed two women into our board, you know, which consists of 15 white men, you know, well, that's not really going to move the needle. And, it's our job as an agency to then challenge the client and educate them and go, look, you know, you're a little bit behind uh, here and maybe it's better to shut up about it and Talk about it when when you 've got some more convincing statistics uh, to to show right I was in in, in APEC as well going there again uh, this November I was there last year, and we had the discussion about climate and, and ESG We found also that in asia it 's not so much on the forefront yet as it is for instance in in Europe, where for instance, if you go to germany it 's a huge topic right You have to, the climate is, is, is everything, and everybody talks about it all the time. But if you go to some countries in, in in Asia Pacific, it's still, you know, like you know, not not a very hot topic at all, yeah. So those are also subtleties to to bear in mind.
2: Yeah, just just on that, maybe not like a, a political stance as such, but we work. Unfortunately, I can't I, I can't say the name of the brand, but we work with a a company who create reusable nappies, um, and. We've just recently launched their website in a, in a few new markets, and and actually the the sentiment and the how it's resonated with audiences is, is massively varied. And in Germany, due to a, a whole new website design, actually the website ended up looking more like a, a charity, like it was educating people about the um you know the the negative implications of sending all these things to landfill and this that and the other and. And actually, we were speaking to a community that didn't need reminding about that. They were already living in a, in a, in a different way, you know. And yeah, just having to really change the messaging um, throughout, that, throughout that process and really thinking, right, the, the consumer, when they're on their journey to buy this product, they actually have very different um, sort of touch points than a typical UK person would or a US person would. Um, so yeah, that that's been quite interesting. Um, it's not not so much political, but uh, again, it's it's a topic that affects a lot of people and it evokes a lot of emotion in people as well.
3: Yeah, and, and coming back to the authentic message, it's important that the message, as we said, it's authentic and consistent uh, over time. We've been supporting, for instance, uh, uh, Barilla a pasta brand uh, in the in the UK and then other markets. Uh, and uh they've been working first through their supply chain on sustainability making it more sustainable over time and then they've been the first the first brand to um in their packaging to remove the the plastic which has been a bold move because of course consumers uh, in in m- m- most of the countries are used to see the product so they want to see the product uh, but of course Leveraging on a strong brand, uh, known brand, qu- uh, quality, and then com- being able to communicate that uh, can help you to pass, of course, some risks that is like, okay, the, the consumer doesn't see the product, can't see the product in transparencies with the, uh, with the plastic, uh, so they might not be inclined to buy the product. Uh, but if you keep the, the message consistent uh, and work through it, uh, and and also... You are consistent also with the the work that you do in terms of sustainability on the on your supply chain, not just on the packaging that is, uh, of course, the most tangible part on the on the consumer side. Then you can be you are you are able to communicate those messages in a stronger way and convey them to uh, the consumer and convince them because, of course, the UK is a market that is very sensitive to certain topics, so it's. I think it's a great test market uh, but then you need to you need to prove yourself in other markets where the consumer might be less sensitive to it so you need to you need to try different techniques to communicate uh, a strong message that may, that may resonate in a different way in different markets.
0: This brings us really nicely onto our second point really which is um not every brand can be one of the top 10 global brands. So what advice can can our listeners take from, you know, the activities of these big global brands? What is sanity versus vanity? Um, so, when is going global advisable?
2: Well, you know, international expansion—it's—it's it's a very daunting process for for any any brand, whether you're small, massive. Um, for me, the focus for a lot of these brands needs to be in utilising data. So it's it's making sure that you've got. The data points to back up those assumptions and, and almost, you know, have something that you can go back to your bosses with and say, look, I can prove the value of this investment. And actually putting those putting those forecasts together is it's not easy. And um, there's lots of variations, lots of caveats that you need to, to sort of um, consider. But it's something that at Search Laboratory we take very seriously. We know that this is a, a pain point for a lot of our clients. And. Um, they don't always know which markets they should enter which, which are the uh, you know what does the com- competitor landscape look like what what does the what's even the the share of the you know the searches that people are making online for your brand versus category compared to the population what well, how can we dominate that and so something that we take quite seriously at search laboratory is is putting those forecasts together so that we can make informed decisions and i guess you know every time we hit a goal we talk about well what's the next step then how can we reinvest that to make sure that you know everything's working for you in the right way um so yeah I would say it always needs to start with the data um, and from that operational um and you know more strategic um sort of support and things like that but yeah that's that's the starting point I would say
4: yeah we we advise our clients to when they want to go and enter a market the three c's we 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 say so it starts with compliancy so first find out what are the laws in a country what are the rules um we work for instance for e-scooter brands um are the products even, uh, you know, allowed in a market? You know, are they, are, they, are they legal? Are you even able to operate, you know, uh, as a legal entity? A lot of companies have e-commerce platforms. Are you allowed to store data of individuals in, uh, in a particular market on your foreign server? Or do you need to have local servers? All these questions need to be answered first before you enter a market. And then the other two Cs we say are culture and climate, so, culture, look at what's, you know, the politics, religion, food, culture, fashion, and look at where your brand resonates with a certain audience and what brand attributes you may need to alter or adapt to fit a market. And climate is both from a political point of view, but also a physical uh, point of view. In some markets, the climate temperatures are very different, you know, I mean, um, and and therefore the lifestyle is very different. Uh, We work for LG, they do air purifiers and they do, uh, you know, air conditioning products. I mean, you can imagine that, you know, the need for those products really varies to where you are on the planet. Yeah. So both the physical climate, but also the political and and cultural climate, Uh, all of those factors you need to take a really, really close look at before you enter a market but to nicolas point you know it's got to be worth your while do your research make sure that there's you've looked at what the potential is for your brand what competitors there are in a market as well because where you may not have a lot of local competitors in one market you may have very established competitors in others which make entering that market much harder so it all comes down to talking to locals you know finding out what's going on and when you do content don't just translate transcreate make it relevant you know in both in look and feel and message and adapted completely to to the needs of a local market
3: yeah and if you work with physical products of course um trying with the after your re <clears throat> after doing your research trying with the the DTC now allows you to to test different different consumers and you can plug it in you know google analytics uh, or you know uh, facebook and instagram ads and drive traffic to see what's what's working what resonates uh, and and test and learn who are your your consumers and then the test of course with the with smaller retailers where you can uh, you can see how you know your product and brand has the possibility to go a bit more Mass market over time on uh, on the specific uh, on the specific uh, geography and market. So really, it's about uh, testing and learning over time. Uh, what what are your consumer uh, target consumer? Who are the people in that market that can be passionate about the product? For instance, now, of course, consumers uh, being more and more used to travel around the globe they they like to experience different products at home so if you if you see also in the, in your local market that you know there is an interest in your product uh, from consumers that are coming from other markets, that's potentially something that you can explore and see how that could translate into something that you can export to, to those specific markets. So it's it's about the data. It's about the tests that you, you run. It's about using digital in a smart way to start penetrating those markets in a cost-efficient way and understand where to put your investment in um, once you understand what are your, the segments that, uh, that work for you in terms of consumers? I second it. That's
0: really interesting. And actually, um, talking of investment, I'm very interested to maybe explore with each of you, um, what is the range of budget that you need to enter a particular market? I mean, what are the variables that affect that? But, you know, if I was a brand marketer listening to this and I was thinking I wanted to go global, can, you, can anyone provide a little bit more detail on how you work out what your budget should be?
2: As I mentioned before, we, we tend to work with um, a lot of data points, a lot of analytics. Um, we put forecast dashboards together. Um, and I guess I can't answer the question of how much does it cost to enter a new market or how much does it cost to go global? But what I would say is, even though it is a daunting process, and yes, it's expensive, it doesn't have to be done all at once. That's that's what I would say. We we're sort of open to a lot more options now. Consumers are using various different platforms. Um, there are existing structures out there that we can, you know, take advantage of. And so, one of the things that we we might do, particularly with retail brands, is. Just start to test, I guess, the pickup of the brand on various platforms. So that could be using marketplaces. It might be creating a a localized, if it's in another language, a localized microsite of the most in-demand products. And from there, once you start seeing revenue gains, that's when you start to reinvest. And you start to, every decision is informed by the behavior of your new customers. Um, So rather than sort of thinking, right, I need a full website localization, I need um, a logistics partner, I need new payment options um, on the site, and I need this and I need that, actually utilize what's already there. Find out where consumers, particularly in retail, find out where they are and utilize their existing structures and then build off that knowledge. Um, With B2B, we we do it slightly differently, but... um, that, that might be localizing some advertising campaigns, small to begin with. And again, we, we just use the, the sort of gains to, to reinvest and grow on that. So even though it's daunting, I would say we, we don't really put a budget. It's, it's bespoke, of course, to the resources, the time and the, the budget that our clients have. But there are options. It, it, it's just it's a process. It's an ever growing journey that, that people are on, that, that our brands are on.
1: Yeah. I, I second Nicola there. I think, uh, you know, at Johnny Fish, um, I mean, our ethos is actually to accelerate the digital maturity for organizations. And one of the key things which we do is actually in the implementation of the like, analytics stacks within the uh, client organizations. Because I think decisions on growth need to be hinged on data. They need to be data-driven decisions, right? And, um, you know, when, when we talk about globalization, you know, I mean, if we say like launching a new market, I mean, you know, no host, but it's obviously going to be expensive, but if we can trend it to Roberta's point earlier with data, you know, uh, if we have all connectors actually done properly, if there's going to be a offline to offline to online protocol, actually being built into the uh, Google analytics for, then we can properly track in terms of what the demand is in market. Consumers nowadays are very, very open to e-commerce. And actually, seeing that organic demand from our, um, markets other than the, where HQ is. We give you an insight into, you know, what is the potential um, upside of investments into a certain market. And with Google Analytics, um, with analytics techs especially, you know, there's, uh, there's always going to be machine learning and AI built, built into it. You can do predictive audiences where you can look at different audience sets, as long as you have that first-party data, which actually helps to cap the, the requirement from an investment standpoint here.
4: Yeah, at Team Lewis, it's the same, Um, you know, and you can start small when I, uh, you know, mentioned the example of 50K is not going to cover Asia. No, it's not going to cover Asia, but it can, you know, you can do a couple of months, uh, you know, good campaign in one market or two markets perhaps, right? And instead of looking at budget, you should look at ROI. You should Invest in a market. And then when you've, you know, had the return on investment because you've started selling more products, reinvest that budget into going into another market. Yeah. Grow gradually and build a solid brand and build a solid uh, infrastructure and and move on from there. Yeah. So we have those debates with clients all the time, but you can start with a very small, uh, small budget initially and then scale from there. Uh, one of the clients we present is a small startup company called Stove, and they do heating pillows. Uh, so you can sit outside a bit longer, which really supports the ESG message because you don't then have to use uh, external heating. You can, you know, use, warm yourself up locally, also indoors. You can sit around, uh, you you can leave the heating off uh, longer. But you can imagine that in certain markets, that's a brilliant product. But Herbert's not going to be very happy with that product in Singapore. Do you see what I mean? So, yeah, it's it's going for those markets where the potential is, doing your research and then uh, building the brand there and selling products and then using those revenues to, to to move into other markets one by one.
0: Absolutely. I think I want one of those. I'm best in the UK and my house is quite chilly.
3: <laughs> Roberto? Yeah, uh, Nick, me- measuring ROI since... Day one is key, right? And that allows you to um, to start small, even in a new in a new market. At, at Gringine, of course, with the, with our technology, uh, Gringine Treasure Track and Measure, we can uh, we can help consumers target specific. Uh, brands target specific consumers and see the response. How many consumers are engaging with their ads? How many consumers and what kind of consumers are then going in store and buying buying the product? Uh, and that's that's very powerful because you can start with small campaign and then justify um, a, a bigger budget once you start seeing that the traction grows in terms of uh, conversion to in-store purchase on the consumer side so i think it's key in this case especially for the smaller brands right to to start small, gather the data the insights on the co- type of consumers uh, persona that are engaging with your with your with your brand and your products uh, understand what kind of messaging what kind of products uh, um is actually is actually performing for you with what kind of consumers uh, and i think with the digital technology now you can do it and this is a big difference compared to the past where you needed huge budgets just to start a new market and now this is possible with a way smaller budget as long as you have a plan in mind and you are able then to unlock further budgets uh, once you see things working i think I think, in that sense, what we always recommend at to, to clients is like start more, but think about what's next. What, what if it's working? What if this is working? I think generating that momentum and leveraging on that momentum that you are creating by being able to unlock further budget. If things work as as you uh, wish, then it's it's really important this is this
0: is really a great conversation. Um we've covered a lot of um what marketers should do if they're thinking about going global. How about um you know just to sort of close things off. If your marketing director has said to you, right, we need to go global, bring me a plan, what should you definitely not do? Um what are the common pitfalls that you see so sometimes a client has come to you and they're self-diagnosing something and you have to advise them and steer them another way?
2: For me, it's to think that automation is the answer for absolutely everything. I think you have to have a human spark behind every machine. You have to teach a lot of machines. And don't get me wrong, there are, we, we, do, we do sort of work on a hybrid approach. We, we embrace AI, particularly in localization. But there are a lot of mistakes that can happen. And like I say, if you if you don't get the right reputation at ground level um, from day one, that can be very costly and very um, sort of timely to sort out. So, my yeah, my advice would be to always use a hybrid approach. There, there are options out there. But as we've seen, we, we work with a lot of companies who enter Germany. And recently we've been working with Office. Um, who obviously sell quite a lot of branded uh, trainers. And when you automate trainers into German, actually you're competing against fitness coaches and, you know, fitness instructors and things like that. So we, we need to always think, right, what is the cultural, in context, you know, term that we should use? What are people searching for? Um, so that's my advice. There's nothing, you know, we're not saying it's completely bad it's just always use a hybrid approach and teach the machines
4: yeah i think the summary of and and, and i think all the uh, you know participants in this conversation have said the same i think it's um don't run before you can walk you know and and seek local advice always don't assume anything about a market don't assume because you've googled some wikipedia statistics about a market you understand it talk to people in the market uh, it is super crucial to understand what goes on what's culturally relevant visit the market if you're in a position to do so i mean because that is going to really educate you on what what the feel is in the market what the vibe is and talk to as many people as you possibly can from all age groups and 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 do your research yeah i think a lot of times People just gloss over things too quickly or just assume they know the lay of the land, but you don't, right? Always seek the local advice before you enter a market.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, big believer in research and it's really to know the lay of the land. But if launching a product and, you know, we talked about, you know, standing for something as well, uh, prepare for backlash, right? Because uh, it may come, uh, but, you know, make sure crisis comp is actually going to be. There as well, um, and today I think we're you know you are seeing consumers who are being offered a huge, a bigger number of ads than ever. Um, PR is the way to be the cut through. Um, there are ways to go hack the the growth machine, right? So you know if it's leveraging, if you can not represent it yourself, represent it through influencers, there are loads of different ways. Just ensuring that you know the research is right, your brand is authentic, and stay true to the core right?
3: yeah and in order to nurture and work through that growth machine i think as 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 we were saying it's important to rather than going big with the with a branding piece a brand marketing campaign that then doesn't resonate and doesn't work starting with adding that um digital Branding plus performance piece, so that you can start un- understanding quickly what resonates and then once you once you test it in small, then understanding okay um, I can bring this kind of messaging that is authentic and consistent with my with my branding to a a, a bigger branding campaign that is potentially slightly different from what you would do in other in other markets so you can't you can't bring the same branding message uh, and branding campaigns uh, to new to new markets because it might not work so it's worth testing it with the and driving that performance to see uh, and determine the ROI and what are the consumers that are engaging uh, with your brands and products and then bring it to a bigger scale with bigger branding campaign because it's still important to keep building your brands also in the in the new markets Well, wow, so I think we've we've
0: covered it all. Um I think this has been a really good podcast. Um, we've started with the big global brands and we've brought it down to perhaps a more manageable level um for for listeners who are not from the global brands. We've covered how uh, building a brand campaign is different now than it was in the past. And um we've covered, you know, the advice on what to do and most importantly, perhaps, and what not to do um, when embarking on a brand campaign. Um, Obviously, uh, a good move if you are planning to embark on a brand campaign is to contact one of our experts (laughs) Um, uh, whose details you can find um, in the notes of this podcast. So once again, um, this has been Nikki McMorrow, the head of the Drum Network with four brilliant agency leaders from the Drum Network. Thank you for listening. Bye.